Welcome to Old Spiral Podcast. Brian, how are you doing today on this nice spring day? It was a nice spring day. We got a nice spring shower right in the middle of it. We did. Um, I worked outside, worked on the chicken coop a little bit. I worked on the last few things I need to finish up for my schooling. So I graded my last <laughs> I graded my last statics assignment. That was felt pretty good to get that over with. Still have to watch and do a report on a couple seminars. And then, of course, why we're here today, I have to give an hour, a 45-minute presentation on Wednesday to talk about all the research I've done the last couple years. And then a committee of three will decide whether or not I get to graduate. Right. And you're under sort of unusual circumstances given the COVID-19 epidemic. You now have to defend your thesis via Zoom. Is that correct? That is correct. So Uh. I was, uh, I had a meeting with my advisor last Wednesday or something and my power went out. Oh, I think it was Friday and my power went out and then I tried to use my phone as a hotspot and it did not really work. Oh, so hopefully my power remains on on Wednesday <laughs> yeah. because that could be shitty. Well, there it is. So what are we going to talk about? What is your thesis over? Uh, well, we're going to talk today about a compound called nitrogen trichloride. It's as it sounds. You got one nitrogen attached to three chlorine atoms, and it exists inside indoor pool air. Okay. So this is going to be pretty pertinent information if you happen to have an indoor pool and uh, maybe some best practices that you could uh, start applying to how you maintain your pool. As far as best, best, whoa, as far as best practices (laughs) go, um, I think that if I can convince you of anything today, don't pee in the pool. Oh, man. And I'll admit it right now. Before I started this research, I was an offender. I did not, you know, who wants to get up soaking wet, walk to a bathroom, pull down your wet trunks? I won't, I'll stop there. But I'm just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm, I may or may not have been an offender on the whole peeing in the pool thing. But I'm telling you right now, that ended after I started learning about nitrogen trichloride and just... Um, it's, of course, it's, uh, it's what happens in the pool doesn't stay in the pool. It uh, Nitrogen trichloride especially, it goes into the air really readily. And then if you are someone who spends a lot of time in, an in, in indoor pools, that's why it's, uh, it's a bigger deal in indoor pools because the air kind of builds up. So if you don't have a good HVAC system, outdoor pools, you got a good breeze, it's not going to be, of course, it's not going to build up as much. So what is what is the detriment or the harm that could be done uh, to somebody from breathing in this? Yeah, and, and I'll get into that. If you're listening uh, as a podcast, I'll try to be as descriptive as possible. We won't get too technical. Drew's here to keep me from uh, spouting off chemical names uh, without regard for the common listener. Uh, but uh, what, what we're trying to do, what I'm doing right now is I have a, a PowerPoint presentation. I'm recording it. And so I'm going to get that uploaded to YouTube. So if you want to stop right now and head over to YouTube, you can kind of follow along with us. Or if you happen to be a graduate student that is uh, interested in uh, the same measurement that Brian uh, used here, you can you can study up on that YouTube video. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, but the health effects of 
nitrogen trichloride. Um, I'll start out with an anecdotal story. Why not? Kind of fun. I have a friend. uh, Her name is Amelia. Hello, Amelia. Um, She was a swimmer as a child, and she was swimming at a meet one time, and she was swimming, swimming, swimming. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, she had an asthma attack. Mm. Right? Hard time breathing, had to get out of the pool, had to get some fresh air, all this stuff. And so that's one of the things that nitrogen trichloride can do is cause uh, trigger asthma attacks, right? Mm. It can also cause eye irritation, throat irritation, um, in, in, in extreme cases, vomiting. So those are all the short-term effects. And those are pretty well known. And there's been a lot of research, which we'll talk about a little bit, um, about what levels that starts occurring. Mm-hmm. But there are some long-term effects that are suspected, although more epidemiological studies and just kind of a fine-tuning of actually measuring these compounds in pool air will need to be done before we can definitively say bladder cancer and long-term bronchial hypersensitivity is going to occur if you're exposed to this for a long oh, time. Wow. Another short anecdote, uh, a couple of people who were elite swimmers in their youth, now their kids are growing up and swimming, but they can't stay in an indoor pool for more than like 10 minutes before they have to go get air because they're, they just get, it just gets, gets sore and <laughs> hard to breathe and stuff. So it's wow. not a good compound. And as we alluded to earlier, peeing in the pool tends to make a lot of this compound. Urea found in urine, it's a, it's one of the, um, uh, it's a really good precursor for this compound. Hmm. Uh, the other stuff that makes this compound would be sweat. You're in the pool, you're exercising hard, you're sweating, you're going to create some. Don't feel bad about that. That's just going to happen. And then uh, the other big thing besides peeing in the pool, shower before you get in the pool. I always thought, well, I took a shower this morning or before I can't, you know, I'm pretty clean. No, just still rinse off. Uh, one study I was looking at found that if you shower for a minute and that's just no soap you're just water over your body kind of rubbing it for a minute you'll leave half the amount of pollutants in the pool as it if you didn't shower wow rinse off. yeah and so i would imagine it's equally as important obviously to shower after you swim as well yeah of course you know I, I, that's not something i looked at too much was how chlorine affects your skin and all that stuff but yeah it's good to shower when you're done in the pool yeah yeah, and plus you don't know who else has been in the pool. and Who else has peed in the pool? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so nitrogen trichloride, it's, just, it's, a, it's a class of something called a disinfection byproduct, which, simple enough, right? You put chlorine in the pool to disinfect. Um, it, it's called free chlorine, and it mixes, it eats up all the bacteria, dirt, sweat, urine that you put in the pool, and it creates a whole bunch of cla- uh, compounds. Um, for those chemists listening, we get trihalomethanes, haloacetic acids, haloacetonitriles, and chloramines, which nitrogen trichloride is a chloramine. Ammonia. Everyone's heard of ammonia, right? Mm-hmm. NH3. Okay. So nitrogen, three hydrogens. You take off one, you put on a chlorine. That's nitrogen monochloride. You take off another hydrogen and you put on a chlorine, you get nitrogen dichloride or dichloramine, and then you take off that third hydrogen, put on a third chlorine, and you got nitrogen trichloride. 
So these are all compounds. Oh, uh, trihalomethane, that uh, the most abundant one found in the pool would be uh, chloroform. Oh, really? Yeah, chloroform uh, uh, is a, uh, it's a chlorine. So if you got a, or a chlorine, it's a carbon. Uh, so methane, right, carbon, four hydrogens on it. And chloroform is if you took three of those hydrogens and put chlorines in their place. So how much of that would, how much of chloroform particulate matter is kind of hanging out in the air that you're breathing in while you're swimming? Is it quite a bit or? It's not horrible. I've only found uh, one study. I'm sure there are others, but I only looked at one study that said that uh, they were in an indoor pool found around 20 parts per billion. Mm. Uh, Let's see. I should get some good references um, for what, where, where it's found other places, mm-hmm. but I'm, it's, it's not super high. It's not standing out to me as something dangerous or anything. Gotcha. Yeah. I'm sure you can find comparable levels in the air we're breathing now inside homes, but okay. that's a story for another day. Someone <laughs> graduated last semester and he did a study on, uh, um, some of these compounds in indoor air. And it's actually pretty surprising. Uh, side note, open your windows once in a while. Hmm. Very good, very yeah, important. Yeah, I recommend, what isn't it, 30, 30 minutes a day? Yeah. Something like that? I Generally, there's always a window cracked in my house somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, just yeah. after studying all this stuff. Um, you asked earlier, chlorine, liquid, solid? Who yeah, knows? I don't. I don't really know much about pool maintenance. Maybe you could go into that. What what sort of additives, uh, what, what are my choices if I'm putting chlorine into my pool? Sure. So, I mean, it sounds silly. Bleach, right? That's a chlorine-containing uh-huh. compound. A sodium hypochlorite is kind of that active ingredient in bleach. Uh, that's that can be used in, in a pool. Um, you can that would be liquid. Mm-hmm. And of then course. there are solid ones um, or granular solid. Sometimes they'll come in little pucks. Oh, sometimes okay. they'll just be in a granular mixture. And that one you're looking at something called either calcium hypochlorite. And then a lot of these things have stuff in them. Um, they're trade named dichlor and trichlor, which mm. sounds pretty uh, badass. Uh, <laughs> but basically, those just have an additive, especially for outdoor pools. It keeps the UV light from eating up your free chlorine as quickly. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's something to consider UV uh, versus indoor and outdoor. I didn't even consider that. Huh. Right. And it was kind of neat. Uh, I don't think we'll actually get into it in this, but I took a little UV light sensor to the WCU pool, which, well, by the way, I took measurements at a WCU indoor pool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took uh, the UV measurements outside and inside, and they have its ton, ton of windows mm-hmm. at the U- WSU pool. And they're, they just have this UV coating and so outside you'd see like 29 units i can't remember what it was offhand and then indoor you'd see like 0.5 so it was wow. cutting out almost all uv light and uv light though also besides giving you skin cancer uh it will break apart these uh, nitrogen trichloride atoms so maybe a little sunlight getting in the pool a little uv light can reduce those levels a bit hmm. but that is me speculating <laughs> if you put liquid chlorine in the pool if you put solid chlorine in the pool what they're gonna do is or you put gas gaseous a lot of people will use gas chlorine gas to chlorinate pools especially really large pools it's it's pumped in it's pumped in and and, uh, usually to the bottom of the pool oh wow yeah and just kind of bubbles up bubbles through and gets into solution so let's say i do a cannonball (laughs) 
and I, and I end up down there by the pump. Is that going to be? Uh, nah, it's not a big deal. They got it figured out. Again, I don't know a whole lot about the actual equipment. Yeah, but you'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> All right. Uh, the chlorine gas. I think it's. I think it's generally used for uh, larger pools, mm. and then you can dissolve a gas into a liquid just like you could dissolve a solid into a liquid. Hmm. So that's what's going on there. So no matter what form you put in, right, you're going to get two things. At a pool pH, which if you want a pool, your pool pH should be between 7.2 and 7.8. And at that pH level, you're going to get something called hypochlorous acid, H-O-C-L, and hypochlorite ion, O-C-L. So it's missing the H. It's got a little bit of a negative charge. And basically the H-O-C-L is going to be the better sanitizer, it's gonna. It's more readily. It's gonna oxidize these compounds and create the disinfection byproducts. So that's kind of the whole idea. Is you're putting these. So you got a pool. No one's been in it. You got water. You put in a bunch of chlorine, and you're gonna get water, hypochlorous acid, and hypochlorite ion all swimming around in there, waiting for your dirty body <laughs> to get in. So it's got a job to do. Or your pee. Or your pee. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um. So yeah, after after you get in the pool, it makes these compounds. We've got nitrogen mono, dye, trichloride. We just talked about those a minute ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll make more sense again if you're following along. I'm referencing some slides here. So I didn't measure anything that had to do with pool water. Mm-hmm. My background, so my master's degree is going to be in something called environmental engineering. And basically what environmental engineers do is it spans concrete, all right? Uh, It spans uh, water, so wastewater or drinking water, and land, so you could be a soil, be a soil uh, engineer, and then air, right? So water, land, air. Uh, I got a bachelor's degree from LCSE, right, in chemistry, and under Nancy Johnston, and she works there, and she was trained as an atmospheric chemist, so that's what I consider myself as, more than an engineer, because I never really took engineering courses, I've taken a few now, Mm -hmm. um, but I consider myself an atmospheric chemist, so I'm concerned about what's in the air. Right. And, let's see here, Um, Nancy Johnston, I'll get another side note, she studied under... Uh, the gentleman at UC Berkeley who discovered uh, what caused the hole in the ozone layer. Right. Yeah, back pretty, in the day. Pretty impressive accolades. Of, yeah, it's pretty yeah. cool. That was her advisor in grad school when she right. was getting her doctorate. Right. And that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. There's there's a quite a extensive catalog of uh, really impressive work that many of the professors have done at LC and hopefully we can have some of those folks on and discuss uh, some of the things they've studied because there are a lot of really cool things that many of the professors have done. Yeah. Don't let me forget. Um, Nancy's putting out a paper um, with some of the research that I did and many other students um, when I was at LCSC. And if that gets published and even if it doesn't, we'll have to have her in just to talk about all that. Is uh, we're measuring sulfur and a whole bunch of other some carcinogenic here compounds in the valley, in the right? Valley. Yeah. yeah, so that'd be kind of cool to know what's in, in that air. But back to pool air. 
Nitrogen trichloride, uh, there's something called a Henry's Law coefficient. Basically, what Henry's Law describes is how soluble a gas is in water. Uh, I think it can do other mediums too besides water, but we're focused on water. So if you are watching, uh, nitrogen trichloride's coefficient is 0 0.1. Right, what's that matter? Doesn't matter. We go look at all the way up to monochloramine, and it's up to 94, right? So 94 to 0.1, so it's like a 1,000 times bigger. Right. And basically, the smaller the number, the less soluble it is in water. So what's happening is you get in the pool, you make all these disinfection byproducts, and nitrogen trichloride is very volatile is what we'll call it. So it, it escapes from water really quickly. And so the rest of them... They'll get into the air a bit, but they're mostly going to stay in the water. And nitrogen trichloride is going to leave the water as fast as it can and get into the air where we breathe it in and it causes all these health problems. Hmm. And so that's where I come in with wanting to measure nitrogen trichloride. Uh, so before we get to what I did, um, from the research that I've done, chloramines in water has been going back a long time. It's been studied for quite a while because mm -hmm. um, one of the steps in wastewater treatment, one of the end steps, is uh, either using UV or chlorine to disinfect it before it goes back to the river. Mm. And so these disinfection byproducts are also made in wastewater treatment and the chloramines and all that stuff. And monochloramine is sometimes added to drinking water before it leaves the pump station. It helps it stay sanitized from the pump station to your house. Hmm. So so that's been looked at for a long time, but uh, as far as nitrogen trichloride in pool air, it's only really been looked at since maybe the 80s, and the, the scientific paper that is cited most often, the people that developed the current, like, accepted quote-unquote method for measuring nitrogen trichloride was done in 1995. In France. Yeah, I was going to say, and wasn't a good chunk of the research that you've discussed with me about uh, in, in your what you reference in your research, wasn't that from Europe, Most a lot of it? Oh, yeah, definitely. Wasn't there a paper from like Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic or something <laughs> like that? The or? guy's name was Czech. Uh, that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't remember where he was from. A lot of it's from France, Switzerland, uh, Norway. I've got a table coming up that'll it'll show. I think it's probably the next slide. Ah. Um, to show all, uh, well, it was a really big table. I shortened it up mm. to the past few years. Uh, but it hasn't really been measured in air too much. And so what we have found is it ranges from about anywhere from undetectable, which we're talking like three to 10 parts per billion, if not lower to over 350 parts per billion is the highest level that I was able to find in the literature. Uh, let's just jump to, yeah, we'll just jump to this table really quick. Uh, so as we can see, there's countries, France, Germany, Sweden, Canada, France, Norway, and then there's one lab in Purdue that has been studying chloramines, um, and then even they only have a few actual tests where they measured the air. That, like I said, they do a lot of water stuff, 
where and they that's actually again probably relating to wastewater treatment, not so much pools. No, no, the they lab? measured it in the pool. Area. Oh, it was yeah, pools. but the even that lab from Purdue, uh, I, there's got to be less than. 500 U.S. measurements mm. of nitrogen trichloride wow. in pool air. And my measurement technique, which we'll get into, I was able to get in 13 days at the pool a little over 11,000 data points for nitrogen wow. trichloride, which was really cool. And didn't you say that's, at this point, the highest number of As far of data as I points? can tell. Yeah. Yeah, and well, so let's talk about that. Uh, that would be... Um, oh, right. It makes sense that Can I uh, go backwards. That so many of these studies have been done in colder places where uh, where there would be many indoor pools. Yeah. Well, I skipped over some slides, and it looks like I can't go backwards <laughs> for some reason. Uh, but what I'll say is the the methods now. Uh, so it basically, you're pumping pool air. You get this pump, and mm-hmm. you get a filter. Well, it's a bunch of filters, right? A couple of the first ones are to keep droplets out water droplets out uh and then the second one has a special coating that takes the nitrogen trichloride and it breaks it into uh, ammonia and hypochlorous acid and then finally you'll take that and you'll convert all that into chloride ions and then you'll measure it using something called ion chromatography Mm -hmm. and so what they get is a total amount of chloride ions it's like, great, but I want a nitrogen trichloride. And then you just say, well, there's three chlorines for every nitrogen trichloride, so just divide it by three, and that's your number, which is fine. But what if you get some dichloramine on there? Or what if you get one of these other chlorine compounds on there and it and it breaks apart? And how do you know you're measuring nitrogen trichloride and you're not getting an artificially high signal from some of these other things? Gotcha. And the, the thing is, is you don't. Right. I mean, even the author that came up with that's like, hey, so I'm going to recommend, you know, people were reporting symptoms at about uh, 50 to 100 parts per billion using this method. So that should be the limit when you're measuring it using this method. And then they say, you know, further studies can come out and, and change that. Hmm. And so that's something that I was trying to do right. at WSU. Very cool. Yeah. So what sent you down this path of researching the air in, in and around uh, in indoor pools. How, how did you come up with that as part of your your thesis? Sure. Uh, well, okay, so I left. I met uh, Tom, who's my advisor, uh, my last year at LCSE. Mm-hmm. Nancy and I, were, well, we were doing the, we were studying the air here in the valley, mm-hmm. and so was Tom. He had a small research group composed of, I think at that time it was two students, Okay. Uh, when I came in, we had four, and now when I'm leaving, he's only going to have one. Mm. Uh, so, but we had, it, it was uh, Yibo. I like Yibo, Yibo uh, Huang Fu. He moved back to China to do a postdoc when he was done. Uh, but I met them studying the air here. He, I, I applied to the WSU program. I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I didn't really know what I wanted to do, like chemistry or something else. WSU used to have an atmospheric chemistry program in their chemistry department, but years ago it got moved into the environmental engineering department. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they're doing kind of the same stuff. Tom has a PhD in chemistry, mm-hmm. so he's a chemist as well. Uh, but he, we, he, he basically said, do you know what you want to study? I didn't really. 
And he kind of listed out a handful of things. And I said, well, I'll try this one that seems really interesting. I can use a lot of my chemistry knowledge, which I definitely did. And it was interesting. Um, would I want to stick around for another four years at mediocre pay and earn a doctorate in studying this? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I don't think. Uh, I haven't really found anything I'd want to commit the next four to five years of my life to right. getting a doctorate on, so I'm just hanging up my hat at a master's. Yeah. Um, no, it was his his idea, sort of. He had had, uh, I think he had heard about it. Uh, it's a really great opportunity to use the instrument. So his focus kind of is on the instrument that we use called the proton transfer reaction mass spectrometer. And one of its nice things is you take it to the place you're measuring it and you're taking samples in real time at the at the site and that's kind of like i said the other one you know you're getting these things they break apart you have to take it back to the lab to analyze it with this other method yeah and 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 you're still and you have to you're taking a sample for one to three hours right. with this other method that harry developed uh the guy from france mm-hmm. and so if you want 10 samples you got to do 10 laboratory experience to, to get and with this thing it's just like bam 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 so what's the size of this device it's probably two feet wide three and a half feet tall maybe three feet long hmm. uh relatively and, small yeah it's not super big really compact it's got these turbo pumps in it so because everything's got to you got to suck out of the all the air get it to these really low pressures in there to make everything work and so if it's on and you bump it really hard it could explode because those Whoa. pumps are going thousands of rpms you know uh. Uh, it's a very expensive machine, and you're not supposed to get water in it, and I got water in it <laughs> the first couple of weeks I was there, which was Oops. fine, because I got to learn how to take it apart and clean it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's kind of how I got into it. It was uh, it was an option, and yeah. I said, yeah, why not? Very cool. Yeah. Uh, so that's, so that's kind of the, – there's a few things that make this research – um, nice for an academic. One is there's very few U.S. studies. I only found, and I could be wrong, there could be some out there, but as far as published research goes, there's only the one lab out of Purdue that I found was putting anything out mm. in the U.S. So that's like, hey, if you want to publish a paper, you know, you have to find reasons for people to want to read it. If you're just doing something that's been done and done and done, it's really hard to get it published. But if you're right. like, hey, look, I'm the second person to try this, right. that's something. The second reason that made it really cool is I just ramped up the amount of U.S. data points of nitrogen trichloride in pool air by a factor of, like, a 1,000. Right. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? Yeah. And uh, so those things combined, it was really neat. And then the way I calibrated the instrument um, – not only for nitrogen trichloride, but some of, for some of these other, they're called volatile organic compounds, stuff like methanol and uh, acetone, stuff like that. It, it readily uh, evaporates. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way I calibrated the instrument for some of those, I didn't make up the whole system, but I kind of did a couple things that were new, and I, don't, I haven't seen them in literature. doesn't mean they're not there, but it was just kind of like, hey, guys, check this out. It's cheap. It's fast. And it works really well. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Cool. Uh, and then the third thing is, what happens, this is what we were talking about uh, right before we started, is what happens to nitrogen trichloride when it leaves the pool? Right. Good luck finding anything, right? Mm. There's a bunch of information on other chlorine 
uh, sources. So when it leaves the pool, it's going to get hit with sunlight. It's going to break apart into these things called radicals, and then it can lead to an increase in ozone formation. So around the oceans, you're going to get a lot of this from sea salt. Is going to create these chlorine radicals, and you can lead to an increase in ozone. But even in inland areas, we can see some of these chlorine compounds that are a result of this chlorine and ozone and all this stuff. Hmm. And so it's just another thing that goes into the ozone cycle. I figured that the radicals uh, near the ocean would be um, largely in part from surfers, from surfers <laughs> uh, getting a lot of really radical airtime. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. I love it. Everybody's laughing. Show of hands. Uh, I got uh, two hands up. I think all of the, all of the hands. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, all the hands. So are you bored yet? <laughs> well, I'm not really ready to uh, jump into the deep end uh, a la Cameron, wow. a la Cameron uh, from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You got four left. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess we better say I'm them. giving you six puns. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe this would be a good spot for us to talk about one of our favorite local establishments. That's right. You know what? That is a good idea. I think what we're going to do, we mocked up a commercial. It's for Hogan's Pub. You know we love Hogan's Pub. We know we love Hogan's Pub. And if Hogan's Pub is listening and you want us to run this ad on a regular basis, go ahead and send us an email at (laughs) oldspiralpodcast@gmail.com. And that goes for anyone else that's a business owner that wants a little bit of uh, airtime on Old Spiral Podcast. Uh, We'll see you in a minute. AOSP fans just wanted to take a quick break to tell you about our favorite family-owned local bar and restaurant, Hogan's Pub. There's no better place for lunch, dinner, and hopefully returning soon, live music. Hogan's is home of the legendary Hogue sauce and the best burgers in town. Don't forget about their bite size either. Call ahead and the friendly staff will bring the order to your car, and don't forget to include a growler of your favorite local beer. Hogan's Pub, come as you are. And we're back, and we love Hogan's. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was a great commercial. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about what the heck is proton transfer reaction mass spectrometry. A lot of big words. We're going to make it not actually that difficult. If you've taken high school chemistry, you may have heard of a proton. Proton has a positive charge. You sleep yet? I'm just joking. Um, So proton has a positive charge. And so what we do is we use uh, water vapor, H2O. Uh Uh, We shoot a bunch of electrons at it. It does all this stuff. I'm not going to really get into too hardcore right now. Uh, But it puts a proton on there. So now it's H3O plus, right? H3O instead of H2O. And if your compound wants the protons more than water does that compound will take that proton from water. Mm-hmm. So now it's just back to H2O again. It's nice if you're looking at the slide, you can see I've got a, a generic compound marked R. Right. And it'll just take that proton from water. And what that's able to do then is go through something called a mass spectrometer. And that 
is just a fancy way of saying I'll have a, it goes, oh, it's charged because it goes through these magnets that kind of direct the ions where they're going. And then the detector is kind of spaced out. So just like uh, you can imagine, if you throw a bowling ball, it's going to go a few feet and then drop. Mm-hmm. If you throw a golf ball, it's going to go a lot farther before it drops, right? Right. So it's kind of the same idea. Lightweight compounds are going to hit the detector at a different spot than heavyweight compounds. Sure. Right? And so what that allows us to do is nitrogen trichloride, it weighs 119. You throw the extra proton on there, now it weighs 120. And so we can say, detector, uh, I want you to measure mass 120, and it will. And so generally we have a whole list of compounds and it'll, and, and generally I'm just going to say for, for shorthand, you say detector measure each compound on the mass list for one second. So to measure this one, it'll be one second. It'll take a measurement. Then it'll go to the next one for a second and then it'll go to the next one. And, and we call it cycles and gen- and what happened in, in the pool was it, mine would cycle through my mass list mm-hmm. every 96 seconds. So I would get a uh, nitrogen trichloride data point every 96 seconds. And same for all the other compounds because it just cycled through that list. Uh, And so it's open for a second. For that one second, it will count how many times it gets hit by one of those ions. And every time it gets hit, it causes all these uh it's it, it causes all these electrons to get made and made and made. And then what that does is it sends a signal from the instrument to your computer and your computer in in hertz, right? Electric signal. And then you got nothing going on and then all of a sudden you got stuff coming in and your signal will increase. Mm-hmm. And when we calibrate the instrument, we give a known concentration to the PTRMS, and then we see where the signal goes, and we say, oh, okay, this concentration relates to this signal. And then when we go out to the pool where we don't know what the concentration is, we get a signal, and we can use that factor, the sensitivity is what it's called, to determine, oh, okay, well, if I've got this signal, that means this is the concentration. Hmm. So were there any other... Um, high measurements of things that, of compounds at, at that 120 that you detected other than sort of what you're mainly looking right. at or, or did anything surprise you in that? Drew, I don't think you know how good of a question that was because hmm. that was a very good question. Uh, that's one of the problems with proton transfer reaction mass spectrometry mm-hmm. because, okay, nitrogen trichloride weighs 120. Maybe there's another compound in the air that also weighs 120. Oh, so it's not sophisticated enough necessarily to detect. Okay, no, they both have the same mass. But there's things we can do. You can look at things called isotopes. Uh, so inside a nucleus, you've got protons and neutrons. If the amount of protons changes, you've got a new element. If the amount of neutrons changes, it's called an isotope. Same element but an isotope. So a common one, you've heard of carbon dating, correct? Sure. So carbon dating, carbon has an isotope uh, of 16, right? So carbon generally weighs 14, uh, but carbon 16 is a very common isotope. It's got uh, two extra neutrons, so it weighs two more. And these uh, isotopes, they exist in a ratio that's kind of universal, 
I don't remember what the carbon 16, carbon 14 isotopic ratio is what it's called is. Uh, but let's see, I'm trying to think if there's any that I do know. Nah, that's okay. But they'd exist in these certain ratios. Oh, I guess uh, I do because we measure uh, water vapors isotope and we multiply it by 490. Mm. So the isotope for water vapor that we measure is, I don't think it's water vapor, I think it's something else. It doesn't matter. Is it, it, For every 490 of the regular one, you'll get one of the isotopes. Gotcha. So we can look at these isotopic uh, masses and say, oh, look, you know, they're, it's a one-to-one thing. That gives you a clue that it's what you're looking at. Um, and the, But yes, that's, that's one of the difficult things about PTRMS is how do you know that mass 33 is really ethanol? It right. could be something else. Hmm. So, very good question. So you'd have to eventually train whatever device that you're using to recognize, or hopefully one will come out eventually that will recognize what it's actually picking up at that at that specific 120 measurement. Yeah, and there are certain times types of mass spectrometry and, and other measurement techniques that have a resolution better than one. So some of these things you can get down to like, gosh, the sixth or seventh decimal place difference. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And that's when you can really start picking these things apart. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, but for what we did, um, I think it worked really well. It looked like nitrogen trichloride was the only thing we were measuring. Okay. Uh, so here, if you're looking, I've got a cross-section of the PTRMS. So basically, water vapor comes in. We have something called a hollow cathode ion source, shoots electrons at it. We get a whole bunch of these H3O+, and then again, the reaction we saw earlier. And then this is just kind of what it looks like. We put a... Uh, these are uh, rings with a hole in the middle. That's why they look like rectangles on here. Mm. And basically, we put a... a charge so it's more charge on the left side less charge on the right side and then these charged compounds are propelled toward these magnets here in the quadrupole mass spectrometer and then finally they'll hit the detector gotcha yeah uh oh yeah i did all these nice things for my official presentation uh okay so like i said we've got to calibrate it okay so take my instrument to the pool great i've got a signal what does that signal mean useless until you calibrate it mm -hmm. so the way people mostly calibrate it is using uh, gas standards so it's compressed gas in a tank with a known usually it's around like two ppm was the compounds we we're looking at was the concentration in the tank and then you would dilute it with they call it zero air because it doesn't have any of these compounds in it and ppm for the folks at home is parts per million correct yep and it's parts per million. Uh, when we're talking about air, we'll usually throw a V on the end. Parts per million by volume. Right. Uh, and that's just basically for every million things in that packet of air, mm -hmm. you're going to um, maybe see 10 or 100 or whatever. If it's two parts per million, every two for a million compounds to right. be that thing. Sure. Yeah. So really, really low concentration stuff, right. which is awesome. That's great. They call it trace components of air. <laughs> but we also use these things. So not all compounds either like being in the cylinder or maybe they really like being in the cylinder and adsorb to the walls. Uh, 
And there's some compounds you can't use compressed gas cylinders with. Hmm. So we use these things called permeation tubes, which that's just a, we've got a, uh, we have a little chamber. It's set to a specific temperature and there's this little tube and it's got your pure compound in there and it's got a, a, a precise hole drilled in it. And so it releases a certain mass of the compound per minute, hmm. right? At a certain temperature. And so then, you know, and then with the amount of airflow going through, you can use that mass per the airflow and say, okay, here's my concentration. So the PTRMS is controlling or manipulating that temperature or just in the outside Not air? separate things. So the PTRMS, all it does is it sits there and smells. Hmm. So it's constantly taking air in. Right. And then so what we'll do is we'll use all this Teflon tubing and line and different airflows mm-hmm. to bring things to the PTRMS. So you have to or you hope that you can keep a, a consistent temperature throughout your We do, room. and I monitor the temperature. I've got a temperature probe in there. I'm always looking at the temperature. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, things called mass flow controllers that control your airflow and I'm and I and then I have airflow um, measurements that i can take before and after to make sure my airflows were all consistent so it's it's really good i mean we measure the airflows we measure the temperatures and even in the lab there's something called the ideal gas law which is very important and basically an equation is like a teeter-totter mm-hmm. right so on one side of the teeter-totter you've got pressure and volume so what we're talking about there is like the atmospheric pressure in this room it's probably 0.95 atmospheres because we're a couple hundred feet above sea level at sea level you're at one atmosphere right in pullman we're about 9.92 atmospheres generally Hmm. but you use the pressure and volume on one side and on the other side you have this constant they call it the gas constant and you have a, a number of molecules and temperature Right. So if you want to keep it equal, if you increase the pressure, you also have to increase the temperature number of particles and stuff like that. And so we can use like the permeation tube, get a number. We use the airflow to get a volume. Then we always we have a constant. We take the lab temperature, we take the lab pressure, and then we can get um, uh, these concentrations from it. So in addition to calibration, do you also have to clean this instrument each time you're done using it, or is it not really something that... Not each time. We, we probably clean it every six months or so. Um, and then, of course, it we use water vapor to, to make these uh, the proton transfer reaction, so we'll have to refill our, our water container every mm. now and again. And we have these really, really nice water filtration systems to so get ultra-pure water. Mm. So what, what other purposes would i need this particular device for measuring um like where what other applications would i use this for well this device is really cool um so you can it's nice because you can measure air we talked about this proton affinity earlier so water's proton affinity is about 697 kilojoules per mole right Mm -hmm. so nitrogen trichloride's at 721 it's pretty close um, and then there are compounds like formaldehyde, which I think was seven, oh, something around there in between those and hydrogen sulfide also in between those. And so uh, compounds with a proton affinity less than water, they're never going to take that proton from water. So we're not going to see them. And that includes uh, chloroform, which is why I didn't measure chloroform in the pool there, but also includes 
nitrogen, CO2, oxygen. So when we're measuring in the air, because if, if it did measure those, that's all we'd see because that's what's in the air. That's like most of what the air is. Right. So that's what's cool about the PTRMS is it's blind to those compounds. Mm. It's used to measure what are called volatile organic compounds. And we've PTRMSs have been used on airplanes to measure stuff way up high. They've been used in cities, urban areas to measure like car exhaust, uh, a, a lot of carcinogenic. A lot of the VOCs are carcinogenic. And so it's just an air quality measurement tool. And, huh. it, and what's cool about it, like I said, is it's got this almost real-time measurements. It You can leave it – you can set it up and just leave it running for a week, a month or whatever and get continuous data – Mm-hmm. And then, uh, what else was I going to say? I don't know. It's just really cool. You can do all this stuff. You have to be careful where you leave it because it costs so much money. <laughs> yeah, generally it's left in a pretty secure area. Uh, when Tom had it down here, they had it at, uh, oh, what's it? Sunset Park, kind of back behind, I think it's a water something or other, that big building up there. And they had it all gated off with a padlock inside. And then there was, uh, they called it the MACL, the Mobile Atmospheric Chemistry Lab is this little trailer. (laughs) And they had big towers up top and they had sample tubes everywhere and everything was locked inside that as well. Mm. Yeah. But uh, it's been used, I think, I don't know about in our, I think in our lab is used in Mexico City. uh, That Yibo that I was talking about earlier, he looked at 10 how 10 different houses in in and around Pullman I think mm-hmm. uh, and so he did indoor air quality which is kind of a big deal now and and all that stuff so it's very useful hmm. um, so permeation tubes gas standards that's all fine and well but nitrogen trichloride you make it in water right so how do you get it out of the water into the air so I can measure it with um, the PTRMS mm-hmm. is what I'm going to look at. And the dynamic dilution system, it uses a syringe pump to inject my solution. And I know what the concentration is in my solution into the air, into this heated stainless steel tubing where it leaves the water into the air and can be measured by the PTRMS. And that dynamic dilution system, I didn't invent it. Uh, but the way I used it, at least in our lab, it hadn't been done before, and I can't find it in literature the way that I've been using it. And <laughs> it's cheap. Gas standards, these big tanks, they can cost a pretty penny. I can use um, a few milliliters of one of these liquid solutions, dissolve it in water, and the cost is not much. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's really cheap, and it seems to work really well. Um, let's see, moving on. Oh yeah, here's the proton affinities I was talking about. Uh, if you're watching along, we've got a line here that represents water. And if you're close to this line, what's going to happen is you're going to get it protonated, but also water is going to kind of take it back. There's going to be this back reaction where you're trading this proton back and forth and it can lead to really low sensitivity. So even at high concentrations, you'll see kind of a low signal. Hmm. So that coupled with the fact that, uh, again, if there are any chemists listening, you might've done an experiment with nitrogen triiodide, which is kind of similar to nitrogen trichloride in a way. Um, Highly explosive compounds. Hmm. The guy that discovered nitrogen trichloride, Du Long, back in I think the seventeen or eighteen hundreds, 
he purified it and it exploded and he lost two fingers and an eye. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, wow. <laughs> in water, it's safe uh, at very, very low concentration. So uh, I was getting two or th- 0.002 or 0.003 moles per liter or, or with molarity. And it's safe to up about 0.9. Hmm. Uh, so I've got these super dilute concentrations, so it's really difficult to make more than a hundred, maybe two hundred ppb with the with the dynamic dilution system. And then on top of that, you've got this back reaction with water happening, and so to get a really good signal and re- and it's just difficult mm-hmm. with nitrogen trichloride. And that's actually what I spent most of the time on was just trying to figure out how I was going to do that. Right. And I'm skipping through a couple of slides here. Um, this is just showing uh, theoretical what your sensitivity should be, uh, and then what I gas dynamic dilution, and then the gas standards. They agreed very well uh, mm-hmm. together. And then you can see, uh, like this compound acetonitrile, its sensitivity is I got around 18, but the theoretical says it should be about 24. Um, there's just things that happen where you can't always use the theoretical sensitivity that you can calculate using reaction rate constants and all this stuff. Uh, what happens a lot of the time, though, is a bunch of people using PTRMS, they will report their results using this theoretical sensitivity, mm-hmm. and it might not be as accurate as they'd like it to be. Huh. So instead of sort of adjusting your research design or just reporting a more accurate representation they're kind of just going off of well hey some of these compounds they're hard to calibrate uh you know right yeah like we discussed earlier yeah and i don't know the whole reasons behind it i didn't spend a lot of time reading those papers because i was really focused on the whole nitrogen trichloride thing right but basically so you could see this ncps another way to look at that is your hertz signal Mm-hmm. It counts per second, right? You know, I said it's open for a certain amount of time and it counts how many times it gets hit. That's what that CPS is. And then so it's CPS per PPB. So if you take, and I've got a signal in hertz, and then you can divide it by hertz by PPV, and then you're left with this parts per billion concentration. So if I have a signal of 130 for methanol, we're looking at methanol, I got a sensitivity of 13. Mm-hmm. If I have a signal of 130, I would divide it by 13. And I would say, oh, I have 10 ppb, right? Not so bad. Uh, so I think next, yeah, here's a cool slide. This is one of my favorites. So this is a, a, a we've got a, a, a diagram of the dynamic dilution system. You can hook gas standards up to it and run that at the same time or before or and after if you want to just for comparison. Mm-hmm. But what's really cool is we'll we'll run a line of dry air. So this is pretty much 0% humidity air, all right? Now, a lot of the times these compounds are water vapor dependent, so we'll want to look, how does water vapor affect this? Mm-hmm. And so we can run another line of this air through this water. Um, it's, it's this uh, glass tube. It's half full of water, and the air will flow over it and get saturated. So basically the air coming out of this is 100%. RH. And so you can kind of mix these two flows to get 0, 10, 50, 100% RH, whatever you want. Then this has a micro syringe filled with your solution. We can inject it using this syringe pump. 
And oh, before we do that, we get this level down here, that background level, hmm. right? So you, you before you inject your stuff, you'll get this background level, and you'll subtract that from the signal you get. And uh, that it basically background level is just what's going on with nothing in there. So these additional pieces of equipment you had in the lab, or you had these also on site where you're these are in the testing? lab. I made all this, so I wired it up. I uh, so the the stainless steel tubing, right? So mm -hmm. the, there's a box, and it's basically a big catalytic converter, and it breaks apart all the VOCs of the air coming in, and just with high temperatures. Mm -hmm. And then so the air coming out has none of the none of the stuff. It's clean zero air is what we call it. And so that was already there. These mass flow controllers were already there. The water humidifying thing was already there. Um, but what I did was I, this is all Teflon tubing that it's running through. So I put all that together. I had the automatic infusion thing. And this heated stainless steel tubing, I wrapped it with this, uh, it's basically a wire where you plug it in and it gets hot. Mm -hmm. So I wrapped it with that and then I covered it. And then I wired that up to a thermocoupler so you can set the temperature and basically it'll just turn it on and off to maintain the temperature. And so I did all of that. And then of course I made all these, uh, solutions, uh, just from literature, uh, and figuring out how to do it and do it safely. Right. <laughs> and okay. it's just so much trial and error. Don't want to blow uh, <laughs> two fingers and a thumb off or whatever. <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> so once you start injecting this compound, it volatilizes and heads to the PTRMS. You get this signal up here that's really different from the background signal. And what you want is a big difference between your background level and your signal level, which is really difficult if you've got a compound like nitrogen trichloride. Uh, then you can stop the injection, and it'll go back to this low background level. So that's kind of cool. That's a dynamic dilution system. And again, one of the paper, I'm going to try to publish a couple papers off of it, and one of it might be kind of like a technical note is like, hey, look, this is a really inexpensive, fast, reliable way to calibrate your PTRMS, and hopefully it's of enough interest where it'll get published and be kind of nice. <laughs> and maybe other people will calibrate their PTRMS like that. Maybe my name will show up in some citations somewhere. That'd be kind That'd of That'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, so we just, to make nitrogen trichloride, you can do this at home. I don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> but you can. You can make it at home by uh, peeing in your pool. Bleach and ammonia. <laughs> bleach and ammonia. Yeah, you know how they tell you. That's a common thing is don't mix bleach and ammonia right. when you're cleaning because right. you're going to make nitrogen trichloride. Napalm. I don't think that's what napalm is. I think it is. Is it? Yes. I don't look into that. Bleach and ammonia, I believe, oh, is Oh, yeah. There's definitely another something that goes into it, though. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I don't know. You shouldn't be breathing that in. <laughs> no, you shouldn't. Uh, so you make all this stuff, um, but there's uh, kind of the same things that are in swimming pools. So I'm, I'm trying to make – I got water. I'm putting these stuff in. I'm trying to make nitrogen trichloride. That's all I want. Mm -hmm. Nitrogen trichloride. That's not all I get. Mm -hmm. Also, just like in a pool, I've got some hypochlorous acid, the hypochlorite from earlier, right? Mm -hmm. And then also, even at low pHs, because this chlor the chloramines in water, they're kind of pH dependent. Even at these low pHs, I'm still going to see some dichloramine. And so I want to get rid of those, obviously, so I could just see nitrogen trichloride. And this is where a lot of my research went into, um, was using something called UV spectrometry spectroscopy not spectrometry <laughs> spectroscopy doesn't make a difference to you but that's how it is um 
So basically, uh, we shine UV light through a container holding our solution. Your compound, each compound, it will absorb the UV light mm-hmm. at different wavelengths. I shot 200 to 400 nanometers at it at one wavelength intervals. And at certain wavelengths, it will absorb that light. And so there will be less light coming through on the other side, and you get this wavy UV spectrum. And you can use that to say, oh, my, it absorbed this much at this wavelength. I can use this factor to say my concentration was... Three millimolar, right? That's just a concentration that you would find. Uh, So I don't want those other things interfering with my UV spec. So what I did is I took carbon tetrachloride, which we were talking earlier, nitrogen trichloride is not very soluble in water. It's very soluble in carbon tetrachloride. Mm -hmm. So I'll mix them real good, and then I'll take the – they'll separate into different layers like water and oil. Mm-hmm. And I'll take out my carbon tet layer, and then I'd take that to the UV vis and see what kind of numbers I get. I think that's this slide. We use something called, and I I've, I didn't ever write anything on my graduation cap, but if there was one thing I was going to write on my graduation cap, it would be A equals ECL, because a guy named Beer and a guy named Lambert came up with it, and it is referred to as Beer's Law. Hmm. And so if you ever see A equals, it's an epsilon, but we always call it E, A equals ECL on a graduation cap. That is Beer's Law, and that's a very clever, probably, chemist that you're looking at. (laughs) But basically, uh, what's important here is the concentration is equal to that absorbance over this E value. And this E value is something that I got from literature because it's a whole different rodeo to find this stuff. What was really difficult, and I'm, I'm, there's a whole lot of numbers on this PowerPoint here, but what made it difficult is these asterisks uh, indicate a peak wavelength, right? So we got all these different references, and right here at 336 nanometers, that's where nitrogen trichloride really um, absorbs, so you get this really strong uh, peak right there. It turns out in water, you get a really strong peak at 336 But in carbon tet, you actually get that really strong peak at 345. So it takes the whole spectrum. It's in the next slide, but it takes the whole spectrum and just moves it a little bit. (laughs) So it's still the same shape, still the same height differences, but just shifts it to the right a bit. (laughs) This isn't something that was shown in literature. This is also something I'm kind of excited about. These guys over here in the 60s used carbon tet, extracted it, ran a UV vis, said, oh, it peaks at 345. Here's, the, here's that E value that you're supposed to get uh, to, to get that. And then these guys in the 80s, 90s just looked at the UV vis of the solution in water, and they said, oh, it peaks at 336. Here's that E value you use to find the concentration. Well, I did both. I'm going to go to the next slide here. I did both, and the colored lines are the ones in literature. So aqueous right here you can see a peak at about 336 uh and then uh carbon tetrachloride you can see a peak more around 345 right and then here this dashed line is a solution that i made in carbon tetrachloride that peaks at 345 and this black line is a solution that i made in water that peaks at 336 so i was able to show hey look these guys did it in carbon tet these guys did it in water i did it in both and 
Not only do the spectrums agree with what these two other lab people found, but if you use that E-value that each of them said, the concentration comes out to be almost exactly the same. Hmm. So they were both right, years and miles apart, and I was able to show... Hey, look, they were both right, and mm-hmm. look, it's the same concentration no matter which way you choose. <laughs> and that was kind Pretty of cool. exciting when I finally figured that out. I was like, oh, my gosh, because I, I did not put it together. It's just so much information, you know? Sure. And so when I finally figured out, like, oh, these guys absorbed it, extracted it, and these guys didn't, and they're getting, hey, look, I got different stuff. Hey, look, it all matches. It was just mm-hmm. kind of exciting. It was like, guys, look, nail in the coffin. Like, right. Hey, you can do it either way. <laughs> <laughs> they're both right. And that was kind of neat to do. Sure. Uh, dynamic dilution system. So, look, here's, here's a picture of my nitrogen trichloride calibration. You can see this background level. And then all these increases, this is so nice. I didn't have to mess with any flows with my mass flow controllers. I All I had to do was go over to my automatic injection machine. And at this first level, I have 74 parts per billion going into the thing. And I'm like, oh, I want my signal to increase a little more. So instead of stopping stuff and adjusting stuff and checking flows, I just went, I'm not going to do it at one microliter a minute. I'm going to do it at two microliters a minute. I just push a couple buttons, hit start, and bam, you can see it just goes right up. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, I want to increase the signal a little more. So I bump it up. It's super easy and super fast to get this three-point calibration, uh, which was it was kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the problem is, I see, at the other VOC calibration we're looking at, we were seeing signals of like 600, 700. You can see here I've got signals. And that was at 20 ppb for those compounds. Mm-hmm. And here I've got signals of like 10 to 60 or 70 and that's at 75 to 150 parts per billion. Right. So you can see this really low signal for nitrogen trichloride. And this is that back reaction with water. Here's <laughs> another kick in Brian's pants for this whole deal. <laughs> pools are humid. <laughs> Indoor pools are very humid. Sure. So I not only need to know what the sensitivity is in dry air, which is what this is a picture of. Uh, which I got a sensitivity in dry air of, oh, I want to say, yeah, it was 0.2. <laughs> the theoretical one, like I said earlier, that everyone, a lot of people will use, was mm-hmm. 8.4. Mm. So the big difference. This is why right. you got to calibrate your instrument. Right. Um, I just, for kicks and giggles, um, put 8.4 in as my sensitivity for my pool data. And it didn't make any sense because, like I said, we can smell it at 20 ppb, and you could smell it in the pool. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had the level at, like, less than 5, 10 ppb. Hmm. And I'm like, that does not make any sort of sense. So the theoretical right. sensitivity is not correct. The nose knows. The nose knows, yeah. And then there's kind of this joke of, like, <clears throat> tuning your instrument to fit the data, <laughs> right? You know <laughs> what I mean? So it's like I, when I use the theoretical, I'm like, that doesn't look right. I'm not going to use that number sort of thing. Obviously, there's a bunch of other reasons not to, but it was just a kind of a joke. Right. Um, so, yeah, here's a, a few different humidities. There's there's the one I was looking at, like 10, right? These are all normalized, like 10. We're getting a signal of 10. And the background level is like 1, mm-hmm. right? So not a huge difference. You want at least a 3 to 1 uh, a noise to signal ratio, background to signal ratio. Uh, at 33% humidity, I'm down to like 3, 4, maybe 5 
And then by the time you get to the pool, humidity of around 45, I'm getting like two, mm. right? So I, th- I can't calibrate PTRMS at these levels, at these humidities. Right. Okay, now I'm stuck again. Right. Because it's like, now it's worthless. Because mm-hmm. you have to know what it is at those levels. Lucky for us, we've got formaldehyde and hydrogen sulfide. They have a similar proton affinity, which means they undergo similar reactions with water. Mm-hmm. Um, shown, I think it's just in the next slide here. This is hydrogen sulfide. At the beginning, water vapor, blue line, really high, and then sensitivity really low, like 0.8. We drop the water level down to almost zero, and then the sensitivity jumps way up, I think, to um, 2.5. Hmm. So hydrogen sulfide shows this water vapor dependence. Hydrogen trichloride shows it, and formaldehyde shows it. Uh, the Ebo, e- he did a lot of studies with formaldehyde, and he got a good uh, humidity dependence of it. And so he did three studies with multi-point, I think one five-point looks like calibration. And so I fit a line to all three of those. I took all three lines. I kind of made one average them together into one line, and then I was able to see, okay, 0% humidity, which is what I did for nitrogen trichloride. This is the sensitivity. And then at 45%, where you'd find the pool, it it dropped by 3. So you divide it by 3, and you that was the difference. And uh, hydrogen sulfide, it did the same thing for me. Hmm. You divide it by 3 at pool humidity and uh, 0% humidity. Right. And so I just applied that factor of 3 to my nitrogen trichloride and that's what i used for my sensitivity in the pool gotcha yeah um so let's see yep so very low sensitivity 0.064 remember the theoretical was eight right so it was tiny Uh, and then i think we're finally to the pool so we're almost done home stretch i went to the washington state rec center pool the people were super helpful. I got to take a tour. Uh, the The pool manager, Jared, was uh, very nice. He let me set up in their break room, which is kind of on the other side of this wall here that's shown in the picture. Uh, so it's 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 their break room, and I set up there. The the um, maintenance people they drilled a hole in the wall for me to stick my tube oh, out. Wow. Yes, yeah, so you can't really see it, but I it's it's in there. My tube's sticking out of the wall. Um, the pool is gigantic. I think it's like one hundred and thirty five thousand gallons with a ten thousand gallon hot tub, Whoa. all in the same room. Glass windows everywhere. Huge ceilings. I think it was hard to estimate because the ceilings were really tall and then also slanted in some areas. Um, oh, it's really neat if you go there. You can go upstairs and uh, look out into the pool while you're on like the ellipticals and stuff. Oh, it's kind of neat. Uh, but the the room was, I estimated it at like two hundred thousand cubic feet, mm-hmm. which is a big big space. And their HVAC system, the little information I did get was that it can pump out forty one thousand cubic feet per minute, which is insane. That's a but lot. it makes sense because I looked into the Washington State regulations, and for indoor pools they recommend about six air changes per hour. Hmm. And so that would be the system running at 50% at all times. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't. I'm sure it kicks on and off. But that would be six air changes per hour. Hmm. Yeah. So at the WC pool, here's a bunch of compounds that I was looking at, formaldehyde, methanol, acetonitrile. Um, 
the I'll talk about the other compounds that we saw. And here's a picture, a nice picture of nitrogen trichloride and people in the pool, right? Because that's one of the things. If you can't take a lot of data points, how are you supposed to match up people in the pool, which the lifeguards took count, and that was one thing Jared was nice enough to give me was all the pool counts, how many people were in the hot tub, how many people were in the pool. And it was an aver hourly average. So six to seven today, there were five people in the pool, four people in the hot tub, right? Right. Uh, so I was able to put that on behind my data. And as you can see in the picture, if you're looking, you've got this pool person count, the red and black here. This is a pool and hot tub. And then you got these nitrogen trichloride levels. And so when the pool is open, y you see the levels go up and down right. with people. And you got a lot of people, you get higher levels. You get little people, you get real low levels. And it's really neat. Uh, one thing that I forgot to mention when we were looking at all the current data. No, I think I mentioned it. Zero to 350 parts per billion. Um, the WSU pool looked like it was a tad high. Mm -hmm. uh, tad higher than most of the other stuff not out of the realm uh again there are a couple steps uh the ptrms could be calibrated maybe better than what i did and you can get a more realistic number but i, I feel pretty confident in this mm -hmm. and uh the average i think was about 114 parts per billion for the 13 days i was there the max i think was two Oh, let's see, 254, 255, and then the lowest level I saw was about 32 parts per billion. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. From those studies earlier, uh, the amount that is said to start causing irritation would be 100 parts per billion. Some people say it's closer to 50, uh, but as we can see, we're just right at that level to where you're swimming and you're a bit sensitive. You might be noticing some throat irritation or maybe your eyes are real red or something. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So that was, that was kind of the culmination of this whole thing. And it was really cool. There, there's no other graphs like this that show this level of, I mean, this is 13 days of stuff. Right. This is something called a diel graph. So it takes every weekday, every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, so there's two of each. Yeah. Except for a Friday, I think. Depends on what day I started. And it takes all of those days at the certain time, and it averages them for all those days. Hmm. So this is, on average, what you can expect at a certain time in the pool. And you can see it just follows this bather load pretty closely. A nitrogen trichloride was the highest thing I measured by far at around 100 parts per billion. The next closest things were acetylaldehyde, isoprene, methanol, and acetone. Um, isoprene was really cool because that's something that's released from your breath when you're exercising. Hmm. So the idea is if you've got a bunch of people exercising... They're releasing isoprene from their breath. If you're releasing isoprene from your breath, you're probably sweating. Mm -hmm. If you're sweating and in the pool, you're going to be creating nitrogen trichloride. And you can see it's this dotted line. They really follow quite closely together, huh. the nitrogen trichloride and isoprene levels. That's pretty And cool. actually, so does uh, uh, acetaldehyde. It, it kind of follows that same trend as well. I'm not 100% sure. I'd need to look into it more. 
But what's, what is what is really cool is methanol and acetone, they don't follow the trend. They kind of do their own deal. Huh. And so it just kind of goes to show, hey, maybe I was right. Maybe isoprene and nitrogen trichloride are kind of uh, similar to each other as far as when and how they're getting released. Gotcha. So that was, nice. that was neat to see. Uh, it was just kind of a fun study. We were talking about, okay, what happens when it leaves uh, the pool after, you know, it leaves the building. Uh, this is a neat graph. This is what, as far as art goes, I would frame this, put it on the wall. It looks like an abstract <laughs> painting of some sort. kind of does. Uh, this looks y- like it might be uh, the, the design on like a, a, a one-off LaCroix. Yeah, there you go. Exactly, or a or a or a uh, shitty Patagonia hat or something. <laughs> uh, but basically, what this shows is this yellow bit. Uh, the bottom is wavelength. So this is how many photons of each wavelength are going to hit the ground in Pullman on a sunny day in September. This is actually a measurement. I got it from NCAR, um, National Center for Atmospheric Research, I think, and I used that number and the absorbance cross-section for gaseous nitrogen trichloride that was reported. And I got this, it's called a photo dissociation rate constant. And it's basically, you can use this to say how long, if nitrogen trichloride is in the air, how long is it going to take for it to be broken apart by the same light that you'd get a sunburn with? And I found that in September, on the well, for one day in September, best case, in it, let's see, the shortest time that it would be around would be about two hours. Uh, It goes all the way up to like 16 January, February, and all the way down to one or two hours in the summer, just because we're getting more light. Um, And then that would be, those are kind of best case scenarios. It could could be longer than that. Hmm. Yeah. Um, And then that's this one here. So you see the lifetime going. Um, I think that's about it. So have I convinced you? Don't pee in the pool. You're going to breathe this stuff in. Well, I think uh, I think maybe you ought to not pee in the pool just because it's gross. But now we all know it's also something that you shouldn't breathe. No, it's, it's gross for a reason you wouldn't even think of, right? You think you're swimming through people's pee. Actually, almost as soon as you pee in the pool, all that stuff gets broken <laughs> down into other things. You're breathing the pee. It's not pee at that point. Um, But yeah, it's not that you're swimming through other people's stuff, but you're breathing it in and that's going to cause some some stuff. And, you know, I can't remember what I was listening to or looking at, but they were talking about how with lifeguards, uh, uh, not lifeguards, uh, Olympic swimmers, Mm -hmm. it's a common thing that they just pee in the pool. (laughs) <laughs> they they just talk about it. I think Michael Phelps in an interview. They're just so focused and don't want to well, yeah, get, get out of the pool. So they all just pee in the pool and then they breathe it in. And then years down the road, they're going to have all these problems. And that's something that nobody, I mean, everyone knows you're supposed to take a shower and don't pee in the pool. No one really knows why. Right. Like I didn't before I started this. Mm-hmm. You weren't supposed to. Yeah. Or no, hey, I don't want to swim in the pee, even though that's not really what you're doing. There is a very good reason not to pee in the pool, and it's because you're going to breathe it in or other people are going to breathe it in, and it's going to create a nasty atmosphere for everybody. (laughs) Yeah. There it is, folks. Do not pee in the pool. Brian, we wish you the best of luck in defending 
I, I think they will. Uh, we, we wish you the best of luck in defending your Thanks. your thesis. Yeah, this comes with like a seventy uh, something page uh, paper. Oh, I as can well. imagine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a little more in depth, and I left out a lot of the super sciency parts. Right. Yeah, but it's it's been uh, a lot of work up to this point, I imagine, and I bet you feel really good to have this done and uh, sort of out of the way. Yes, as I'm checking off the last few things on my list, it just feels so good to be done. I've been in school since 2014. Right. I started online college. Let's see. Caitlin, I met Caitlin. We moved to Spokane um, from North Carolina because she got into Gonzaga for her uh, school counselor's master program. Mm -hmm. And so I just got a job working at Pizza Hut. Mm Mm-hmm. And she was about finishing up with her degree, and she's like, well, why don't you just do some online courses? Because I thought, I don't want to work at Pizza Hut forever. Right. (laughs) And so I thought, maybe I'll do nursing. That seems like something I could do. Mm -hmm. And so I started taking some courses online at Spokane Community College. And then I think I did that for maybe a year. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it was, they're on the quarter system, so who knows how many quarters it was. And then when we moved back home... I transferred to Walla Walla Community College and finished up there. Uh, it was there where I decided that nursing sounded very hard, <laughs> and it is. It's got to be one of the hardest jobs ever. Mm-hmm. I think I heard something on NPR where more nurses have injuries than construction workers. Oh wow! Like it's got a higher injury rate, and I think it's from I think it's from lifting some hefty people. Yeah, mostly. yeah. I imagine you get all kinds of problems with your joints and your feet. Yeah. A lot of plantar fasciitis. Yeah, yeah. And so nursing just kind of went off the table then, and that's where I discovered chemistry Mm -hmm. and how much I really like chemistry. But yeah, been in school since 2014. I'm done. Yep. I'm done. I don't want to do it anymore. Uh, Writing is not my favorite thing. Mm -hmm. So it's like pulling teeth to get me to write something I don't care about. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm happy that I did it. I'm glad that it's over. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah. Man, whoo, feel like I just <laughs> talked a whole bunch. Um, cool. Well, thanks for listening, those of you who are, that remain. <laughs> <laughs> we took a bit of a trip uh, outside of the valley, but I guess not necessarily if you have no. an indoor pool. It was, it was pertinent well, information Well, the aquatic center, right? The aquatic center. It applies to the aquatic center. And next time you go into pool and you, and you smell that and you smell that chlorine smell. Get out. It's nitrogen trichloride. <laughs> Don't get out. You're fine. <laughs> Um, AdCope. Gosh, I don't know if anybody remembers AdCope. Well, it's snapped now. Well, no, back when it was, and it wasn't even at the end of AdCope. I think they fixed it, but I'm talking about like two th- early, like mid 2000s AdCope. That pool in there was horrible. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that the levels of nitrogen trichloride were at least double of what I saw at the WSU pool. It was so bad. And it's kind of nice relating that back to what I'm looking at now and being like, oh, that's what that was. That was nitrogen trichloride. (laughs) So, yeah, that's what the pool smell is. Don't be in the pool. Um, So, yeah, now we just have to figure out what we're going to do next week. Next week. Next week, everybody. Drew, you why don't you why don't you take half a minute and uh your girlfriend Rachel, hi Rachel, bought a house. She did. And you guys are moving into that house. Yeah, we're working on it now. We're uh knocking down some drywall and I I spent uh much of the day sanding the the hardwood in there. Basically, the whole upstairs is hardwood. So 
sanded that down and it's a lot of work but it's it's going to be great when we uh get it fixed up and can move in heck yeah yeah well again thank you everybody i promise uh we won't do this again for a while <laughs> no i had fun i think it was enjoyable you can hang up your student hat for now i can hang up my student hat yes all right well anything else i think that's it thanks for listening everyone all right i just want to say live your life to the fullest pulling a henry zabrowski here <laughs> laugh no, I'm just <laughs> no. Um, let's see. I just want everyone to know if you're feeling a little alone during this time, I'm giving you a virtual hug right now. There you go. I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping my voice around your earlobes. <laughs> I just want you to feel how much I love and appreciate you guys <laughs> that listen to the show, especially our Patreon. Especially listeners. our Patreon. We got some new Patreon subscriber. Thank Woo-hoo. you to the Funks, baby. Yes. We got the funk. We got it. Yes. So we really appreciate our Patreon subscribers. And, uh, oh, that's right. I've got like a full Patreon episode that I'm going to put out later this week, probably after Wednesday when I defend this thing. Um, uh, But by I think by the end of this week, I'm going to have a Patreon episode out that's just for Patreon listeners. Awesome. And we'll hopefully do some more of those too. Uh, So there is a good reason to subscribe. Cool. All right. That's it. I'm done. See you, everyone. <laughs> cool. Sweet. Woo! I feel like I talked my head, head off. That's good, though.